chapter 7 is where we're going to pick up this morning. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read 36, 37, and 38 uh, for us this morning. So Luke chapter 7, I'm going to pick up reading in verse number 36. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we are in the midst of a series entitled, What Did Jesus Say? And then we'll put a particular topic out there. For example, we looked at what Jesus said about love. We looked at what Jesus said about hell. We looked at what Jesus said about the Bible. Last week, we looked at what Jesus said about being a hypocrite. And this morning, we're looking at what Jesus says, what did Jesus say about worship? Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? The words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. You'll find these similar words. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him um, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, use it to prick our hearts, use it to mature us, use it to help us be more like Jesus. Lord, use it to draw us closer to yourself. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at this idea of being a hypocrite. And here's, here's one of the main ideas we said last week. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. A hypocrite is someone who is like an actor. In reference to uh, being a follower of Jesus, hypocrites are those who you know, appear to have it all together. On the outside, you look like everything's okay. Uh, you, you, you talk the talk, you walk the walk, so to speak. But on the inside, you have, really have no heart for the things of God, nor do you have a heart to serve or follow Jesus. You do it for show, not to love God or to, to really follow Him. This That message sets this message up, up perfectly as we think about worship. John Piper said, It's impossible for you to truly worship if you don't treasure Christ inwardly. And so when that is missing, he says, when, when this idea of treasuring Christ on the inside, when that's missing, he says there's no worship regardless of the forms or the expressions that are present. Now, before we get into our text this morning, I want to speak just a moment about what I mean when I say worship. When I use the word worship, I'm not talking about a worship service. I'm not talking about a church service. Now, sure, the Bible speaks of that we should gather together um, for the purpose of encouraging one another. But you can, you can study this in your own time if you choose to. The New Testament is surprisingly silent. Practically no instruction on how you are to conduct a worship service. Okay? There's two words that are used primarily in the New Testament for the for this idea of worship. And you find them in two different places in the New Testament. The, the first word, it, it, it's, it's used exclusively 47 times in the New Testament, but 46 of those times are used in the Gospels and in Revelation when Jesus is present. When, when somebody would get into the presence of Jesus and they would bow down before Him, or, or in the presence of in Revelation, how the angels would bow, bow down in the presence 
of God Himself. And so when it's used in the context of the Gospels or in Revelation, the word speaks of bowing down like people would bow down before Jesus. Now, in the in the epistles of like Paul and, and Peter and, and John in the New Testament, it speaks of worship as an act of service. For example, Romans chapter 1, verse 9. Paul said that I worship, that I serve God within my spirit in the gospel. This, this idea that worship and service, it's almost equated as the same thing. Go a step further. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Some of you have memorized that verse. Paul says, brothers, I beg you, I implore you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your, and here it is, your spiritual worship. Some of your translations take that and say, it's your spiritual act of service. Now catch what he's saying, catch what the scriptures are saying here. When Jesus is present in the Gospels and in Revelation, this idea of the picture of worship is that you bow down before him. But in the, in the New Testament or in the epistles, it's this idea of now, nope, you serve. You, you go out and you do something different. You say, well, why is that? Because what Jesus taught about worship changes the culture, it changes everything the way we should view worship. And so when I use this, when I, when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about a service. I'm not talking about uh, uh, what type of music that we sing in, in, a, in a service. You can sing every hymn in the hymn book and not worship. You can sing every praise song there is known to mankind and still not worship. In our text this morning, y'all with me? All right, in our text this morning, what we see is not necessarily a teaching on worship, the best teaching that we see on worship is John chapter 4. We're going to look at it in a moment. What we see in this text is an illustration of a lady that worships. You say, well, why are we studying this and not John 4? Sometimes an illustration does more than the teaching itself. Some of you have read a book and then seen a movie based on the book, and you'd much rather see the, the movie than you would the book. And so what we're looking at in our text this morning is it's a picture rather than a lecture on what true worship really is. And guys, I really believe it. If you can grasp what Jesus is, is illustrating to us this morning, it could change your life. It, it could change the, the attitude of your heart as it relates to how you worship Jesus Christ. And so I want to, if you've got a bulletin, there's an outline in there. You could, uh, the outline will be on the screen behind me. Um, you can just kind of follow along with me. Um, maybe it'll help you in the days to come. And so here's the first thing he illustrates in this passage about worship. True worship involves your whole being. Now the text begins that a Pharisee, now his name's Simon, we, we, we get that in the, in the, the verses that are following. There's a Pharisee by the name of Simon that he has invited Jesus to eat a meal with him in his house. Now that's customary. If, if you, there was a rabbi in the area, you were going home for lunch, you would invite the rabbi to come uh, to your house. Uh, it was a polite and kind gesture, but now here's the problem. This Pharisee invited Jesus to his house for one particular reason. He wanted to know something about this Pharisee, I mean, about this rabbi, this teacher that he called Jesus. He had no desire to worship him. In fact, he sought Jesus. Now catch this. He sought Jesus on one level only. It was an intellectual level. He wanted to find out in his mind, is Jesus really a prophet? Is he a rabbi? Who is this Jesus? He seeks him, but it's only on an intellectual level. Now here's the thing. As long as you're only seeking God with your mind only, you'll never give Him the worship 
that is due his name. And so here's the Pharisee. He's seeking Jesus with his mind only. But now here's, here's the second person in this story. There's a woman of the city. You see it in verse 37. So follow along with me now. She's a sinner. Commentators believe that she's a prostitute. Here's a woman. Warren Wiersbe says, if you study the harmony of the gospel, specifically, if I could talk, specifically that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you study the harmony and just try to, to get the timeline of everything that's presented in those gospels, his, uh, his commentators believe that this woman, this, this story, she comes to faith in Christ right after Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, hey guys, if any of you are, uh, got this heavy burden, you, you've got this, you, you've got your way down, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Warren Wiersbe says, if you study the harmony of the Gospels, this woman comes to Jesus right after that, that encounter. And so here's a Pharisee. He's invited Jesus to come and dine in his house. But there's a woman. She's a prostitute. Recently on the heels of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And she hears Jesus is at Simon's house. She takes an alabaster flask of ointment. It's a tool of her trade as a prostitute. She takes it and, and, and she stands behind Jesus. Now, in, in, in this culture, you didn't necessarily sit down at a table. I don't want to, forgive me, I didn't intend to do this, but you would, if the table was here, you would, you would sit down and you would put your feet away from the table and you would recline on your elbow and then you would eat here. Okay? And so here's this woman. She's standing behind Jesus. Her life has been changed by the power of Christ. Uh, she's given him her everything, and she's standing behind him, and she begins to weep. And the Bible says here, she, she began to wet his feet with her tears. The word wet there in the original language, it, it, it speaks of rain. I mean, you get this picture that her life has been so transformed by the power of the gospel that she is raining down tears upon the feet of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's much more than an intellectual level, right? And then she takes her hair down. That's a cultural no-no. A lady could be divorced for taking her hair down in public. And she takes her hair. She begins to wipe the feet of your Savior with her hair. And then the Bible says, and kissed his feet. It's the same word in Luke 15. And the prodigal son, have y'all heard that? Y'all read the prodigal son before where, where the prodigal son leaves and, and he wastes his inheritance and, he, and he's in there and the, and the pigs die and he's like, man, I could go back home. And, and the father's on his front porch and, and he's looking out over the horizon and the father looks out. I recognize that walk. My boy, my boy's come home and he leaps off of his porch and he runs and he, and he falls on the neck of his son. And here's the word. And they began to kiss him. That's what she's doing here. Same word. Now let me tell you, Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. More perfect than any other person has ever walked on the face of the earth. But Jesus had dirty feet. He, he walked the paths of the animals. He had really dirty feet. And here's this lady. Weeping, wetting his feet, wiping his feet with her tears, with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing 
his feet with her perfume. You see, Jesus, this, this, this lady, she didn't come to Jesus just with her mind. She came with her heart and her tears and her gift and her attitude. It all pointed to a changed heart. Now, remember I said Jesus is teaching a worship, best teaching is John chapter 4. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that the Father is seeking people to worship Him. Now, here's, here's what He says, two words, in spirit and in truth. If you only seek Jesus in truth, you become a Pharisee. Did y'all hear that little squelch in my voice? I'm going through changes. You become a Pharisee. You'll end up being more concerned about your traditions than you do Jesus Himself. You'll never be moved in your spirit. Your emotions will never be involved. You'll never fall down before Jesus. You'll never be the person that wipes His feet with your tears. You'll have a heart that is hard and not concerned about the things of Christ. But now on the other hand, if you only focus on the Spirit, you'll end up being blown here and there by every form of doctrine that there is because you're not grounded in the truth. I don't care if you have an emotional experience. I don't care if you if you stand and you sing praise songs and you clap and you, and you get goosebumps. If it's only driven by the Spirit and not grounded in truth, it won't be proper worship. There are people who will fly airplanes into buildings and blow themselves up as an act of worship. But it's not grounded in truth. True worship must involve your whole being. Anything less than that. You fall short of what Jesus says in the New Testament of the worship that He desires. Number two. True worship is about a person, not a place. Now let me go back to John chapter 4 for just a moment. In John chapter 4, the context, Jesus is is talking to a Samaritan by the well. The Jews and Samaritans didn't have any dealings. And they they began to talk about this idea of worship. Now, in the Old Testament, worship happened in a place. It happened in a temple. If you wanted to worship, you had to make it to the temple. That's why Jews were ultra-offended. I mean, they were gravely offended when Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here before you now. And so now, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan and Jesus are talking about the places of worship. Uh, the Samaritan said, how is it that, that you Jews believe you have to worship on that, this mountain, and, and our fathers say that we worship on this mountain, in a different place? You know, here's what Jesus said, John chapter 4, verse 21. He said, the hour is coming when you won't worship in that place or this place. The hour is coming. He repeats that phrase in verse 23 of chapter 4. He said, the hour is coming and is now here. But what's here? Well, Jesus is here. Jesus was there in that context. And so true worship was there in her presence when Christ was there himself. And so what Jesus does in the, in the Gospels is he tears down the barriers. Worship is not bound to a place it's not bound to a system. It's not bound to a form. Instead of worship being here or there, Jesus says, I'm looking for people who will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, people may worship on a mountain. People may worship here and they may worship there. But the place of your worship has nothing to do with the person that you worship. What makes worship real is whether or not you do it in spirit and in truth. Some of you I've worshipped with in, on the island of Haiti. We, we didn't understand a word that they were saying almost 
but our spirits were able to worship with their spirit. Why is that? Because it was done in such a way that it was in spirit and in truth. Now I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Many people, maybe even some of you in this room, you have an unhealthy, unhealthy attachment to your place of worship. You think you can only worship in the context and the confines of these four walls. Now listen to me. Most of the churches in North America and around the world that are reaching the most people for Jesus don't meet in church buildings. They meet in schools. They meet in convention centers. They meet in movie theaters. They meet in boys and girls' uh, homes, uh, the, the, the homes for boys and girls. The place of your worship doesn't matter nearly as much as the person that you're gathering to worship. Somebody say amen. Now, if you could change your focus from where you worship to who you worship, it makes the biggest difference in your life. That's what Jesus is teaching there in John 4. Worship is inward and free from being confined to certain spots. Number three, true worship, it seeks nothing in return. Now what this lady does, she wets his feet with her tears, she wipes it with her hair, she anoints his feet with this very expensive ointment. It's, it's something that was more expensive than the, than the common olive oil that was available during that time. It's an alabaster flask. It was something that was some type of marble that had been mined from Egypt. It was, it was something that was very expensive. She anoints him with this anointment. She doesn't expect anything back from him. Uh, she just offers this gift of worship, of to him. You say, well, why is that important? If we're not careful, now, are y'all with me? I want you to catch this. Many times people will come to Jesus and you'll come with this mindset. Jesus, I'll worship you if you'll get me out of trouble. Jesus, I've got this problem and I'm telling you, if, if you'll just fix this, then I'll really serve you. Uh, Jesus, I, I'll love you if you'll just bring... my. Bring healing to my loved one. Jesus, I'll give faithfully. I'll tithe if you'll give me back more than what I gave you. That's not true worship. That's not the worship that Jesus desires. That's wanting something in return for what you have given to him. John Piper said it this way. God is most glorified in us. That's worship, okay? He's glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in Him. Y'all repeat that with me. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That means that when we come to God expecting something in return, what we're saying is, God, I'm not really satisfied with you. I want to worship you so that you can give me something else. Now, for our guest this morning... I think everybody in here looks really, really nice this morning. But this lady right here, she's beautiful to me. This is my bride. Uh, Fred Luter calls his wife his prime rib, okay? Uh, this is my one and only, my, my sugar right here, okay? Now, now, what if I went up to my, my baby right here and I, I said, you know what, guys? Or Lynn, I love you, but I love you because you can cook so good. (laughs) 
do I really love her for who she is? Or am I loving her for what she does for me? Right? And so when we come to God because we expect something else in return from Him, what we're saying is, God, I, I really don't love you. I love the things that you can do for me. And that's not worship. That's not honoring to the Lord. True worship, it seeks nothing in return. It's fully satisfied in Christ Himself. Number four, true worship is grounded in the gospel. And so the Pharisee who had invited Jesus, in, I mean, verse 39, he saw this. He said, you know what? If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman really is. And so in other words, here's what this Pharisee is saying. This guy's not really a prophet. Because if he, was a, if he were a prophet that could really hear from, G, from God himself, he would know that this lady was a, was a sinner. And so he must not really hear from God. And on the flip side of that, he would say this. Now, if he is a prophet and he's letting this woman uh, touch his feet, then he's excluded from being a prophet for letting a sinner like this touch him. This man must not be a prophet. And it's true, Jesus isn't a prophet. He's God in flesh. And so Jesus being able to know and understand what this guy is saying in, in his spirit, he says in verse 40, Hey, Simon, I've got a story to tell you. And Simon says, okay, stay on, teacher. He says, Simon, there, there was a guy who had loaned two people money. One person, he loaned 500 denarii. That's like a year and a half worth of wages. The, the other person, Simon, he owned 50 denarii. That's like two months worth, worth of wages. And Simon couldn't neither one of them pay back what they had borrowed. But Simon, the money lender, he forgave both debts. Now, Simon, who do you think will love the lender more? Simon answered, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. If you're not careful, you'll read that, and here's what you'll think. The one who sins the most will love Jesus the most. And that's not the point. I want you to stay with me. That's not the point. In this story, catch this, Jesus is the lender, and the Pharisee represents the man that had been loaned 50 denarii, and the woman represents the, uh, the person that had been loaned the 500 denarii. But I want you to catch this. Both of them were in debt in such a way they couldn't pay back their loan. Both of them, because they could not pay back their loan, would end up slaves to the one who had loaned them the money. Here's the difference. The woman recognizes her sinfulness while the Pharisee does not. He walks away saying something like this. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It was only 50 denarii. It was only two months worth of wages. The woman walks away saying... I could have been in bondage the rest of my life. If it hadn't been for this man who had forgiven me of my sins, I would have lived in bondage the rest of my entire life. You see, now, this is so good. It's not the amount of sin that forgiven that's forgiven that really matters. It's the awareness of what God has done for you because of your sin to give you forgiveness that really matters. There, there's a man sitting right back here on this back row, Philip Abdiunas. He's never struggled with sin to the degree that I have, according to the world. He, Philip loves Jesus just as much as I do today, 
Why? Because at a young age, he recognized his sinfulness. And he's trusted in Jesus for that. And you say, Here, here's the point. You don't have to deal with like all of these large sins that the world would classify as large sins. The point is, and the gospel is, is that every single one of us are sinners. How many sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? One. Every single one of us. And because of that sin, we become sinners. It separates us from a holy God. But God loved you so much, desiring for you to be a worshiper of His, that He did the only thing that could be done to redeem you from your sin. He paid the penalty Himself. Because you were not good enough to do it on your own. You see, God doesn't just say, you know what? Forgive me. Somebody has to pay the debt that you owe. It's kind of like if you go to the bank and, and you say, I want a million dollars, and the bank owes you a million dollars, you can't just go back to the bank and say, no, I can't pay it. You know what that bank's going to do? They're going to do everything they can in their power, including taking your possessions if they can, to get what you owe them. And if they can't, somebody's going to have to pay, whether it may be even the bank having to eat what they loaned you. Somebody always has to pay the debt. I had a teacher in high school say, say these words, and some of you have, have, have said similar things. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Somebody has to pay for that. When you're a sinner and you're in debt to, to, to the Father, somebody has to pay for your debt. And so the Father says, you know what? I'll send my only son. He's the only one that can ever live perfect. He'll die and he'll take... He'll take the wrath. He'll take their place. And if anyone will by faith accept this, his offer of forgiveness, they can be redeemed. He will take their place, the punishment that they deserve. But beyond that, not only does he take our place, he gives us his righteousness. He's the only man who's done, ever lived who always lived obedience. Never struggled with sin. And, and so when the Bible says that Jesus is perfect, and we talk about this great transaction, He takes the penalty of our sins, He becomes sin for us, and He gives us His righteousness. And if you'll ever grasp that, no matter whether or not you've just, the only sin you've ever committed was being disobedient to your parents, or if you're the biggest sinner that the world would ever know, if you'll grasp the fact that you have sinned against the Holy God and what He's done to forgive you, it will change the way in which you worship. In fact, you won't just worship on Sunday morning. You'll worship every day of your life. And so when we gather on Sunday mornings, it won't be just a kind of like, all right, let's pair everybody up for this worship service. No, you come on Sunday morning, and worship is an overflow of everything that you've been doing in the midst of the week. Worship is always grounded in the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you for grace and thank you for mercy. Lord, I thank you for what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I thank you for this great salvation that we've been given. And Lord, you are searching for people who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, not people who will go through the motions, not people who will just say, I'm a Christian, not... not, not 
this or that, but, Lord, people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel and not seeking something in return, just people that would fall down and be satisfied in Christ. And, Lord, I pray that there would be a, just a revival of worship among your people. Father, help us to be a people that would worship you in service, Lord, because that's what the Scriptures speak of. It is our spiritual act of worship. So, Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here's your invitation. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation. I'm not talking about, well, you, maybe you've said a prayer, but you've never given Jesus your heart. You, you, you're a person who has kind of just gone through the motions. You, there's no appetite within you to really serve Christ, to worship Him. And this morning, you, you just come forward and say, Preacher, today I want to give my life to Jesus. I, I don't want to go through the motions. I really want to become a follower of Jesus. And we stand and sing in just a moment. You just get up from where you are and you come and take me by the hand and let me know that's what you want to do. And some of you, you know that you're a follower of Jesus, but you, your, your life has just kind of gotten off track and you're not really worshiping. You're, if we can use a church word, you've kind of backslidden. Other things have taken priority in your life over Jesus. And today, would you come and say, huh, I've wanted more of what Jesus can do for me than I've wanted Him for Him who He is. Today, would you just come? You don't have to confess that to me. Jesus is your high priest. Just get on your face. Lord, help me to love you more than anything else. Others of you, man, you do worship. And so I'm asking you that you would just pray during this invitation that the Father would raise up worshipers that would worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, this morning it's going to be on a hymn book, page page 294. If you'd go ahead and take your hymn book, find that and turn, turn there. And stand with us and sing and worship together. Page 294, would you stand and would you sing?